My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Code Cubit, founding partner of Mistral Venture Partners, and I'm excited to host a series on building an enduring investment firm. Let's hear from my guest today. So Brent, welcome to my podcast and uh, your background, those listening in who don't know it, many decades of private equity investing. You're a founder of multiple firms, dozens of investments, uh, multiple billions of dollars raised and, and sold. Super impressive background. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Brent, was the fact that you've lived through and invested through multiple eras, not only of cycles, but of different types of investing. So specifically that, you know, 70s and 80s versus today. And, and I want to explore that a little bit. But if you don't mind, maybe I can ask you, Brent, to start with, you know, your earliest memories of private equity. Why did you choose to be a financial partner as opposed to an operator, you know, running businesses instead of partnering with them? Yeah, that's a great question, Code. I, I think most of us don't make those decisions. I think the decisions are made for us. And uh I've been a financial guy uh, my whole life, and uh, yeah, I've operated uh, some businesses, but even those businesses were of a financial nature. And for me, uh, when I was uh, 40 years old, uh, I didn't think anyone would give me a job, and I needed a job because I had no money. So uh, this was a way for me to get started. Most important for me at that time was independence, and uh, and that was my priority. And so this was a way of achieving that. But you started out working with your uncle, and I you know I don't want to dig in too much to the the Harristown experience, other than to say it was harrowing. But you learned a lot, and I and I think it was a different kind of investing in the seventies and eighties. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced? where you've you've taken TorQuest today, for example, or how you saw the world differently and, and wanted to remake it from that learning? Yeah, look, when I uh, worked for a family company, uh, the objective at that point was uh, to get as much capital as you could under management and to provide it to those who couldn't get capital under management. And that's how we, we started. It principally started in financing people who couldn't raise their capital. So it was subordinated debt. It was mezzanine financing. It was mezzanine financing with kickers. And there were a couple of businesses in Canada at that time, Roy Nat, Roy Mark, others that did that. That was the competitive set that we were trying to compete with. And that's how we got started. I soon began to realize that you were taking all of the risk and you were getting a limited amount of the upside. And so you could have four good ones. And if you had one bad one, you made no money. And so it was a bad model. People are repeating it today through huge debt funds and through 
huge mezzanine lending funds, but it didn't work for for me or for any of the people that I was associated with. So I decided that if we were going to take equity risk, we should be able to get equity returns. When we started, there was almost nobody in the business. So you could buy an auto parts company uh, that had four years left on a platform and you could buy it so that if if all you did was run out the four years, uh, you would get your capital back. And in the best case, you'd win another platform and you'd be back in business. Worst case, you'd liquidate the equipment at the end and you'd still make a decent return. The competitive environment has changed substantially. So now when you're in the business, it's very hard to differentiate between value and growth. And we've all moved along the line of those things and, and have to do growth equity in everything we do because you just can't buy things at those prices anymore. There's just too much capital. There's no doubt that's the current environment. It's growth at all costs and and to heck with profitability or ROI or, or things like that, like EBITDA. That's the extreme code. And that's where where it is today. We try and fit somewhere back along that path so it's not identical to that. Yeah, no, I, I admire that. And, and frankly, even as a VC, we try to emulate that to some extent, right? We're, we don't look for EBITDA, but we're certainly looking for value and value proposition that matters, right? Solving a real problem. If I go back though, Brent, to call it the late 90s, when you exited from Harrowston and you started thinking about TorQuest, can you kind of walk through what you were thinking? You were going to start a new firm under a different banner, um, different team, and, and you partnered with, I guess, Eric at the time. What went into that discussion and, and that starting point? Because you raised, you know, a modest, significant at the time, but a modest 135 million, small compared to your last fund, but it was still starting out fresh. And so if you had a clean slate of paper, then what did you think about and how did you want to build the firm? When we raised Harrison, which was just a $37 million raise initially, it was done in a public vehicle because at that time there wasn't, it was it was sort of just at the start of KKR and there was not a traditional GPLP market in Canada. And so the only way you could raise capital was in a public vehicle. And that's why you saw uh, guys like uh, Jerry Schwartz in Onyx or uh, Joe Rotman in Clarivas doing the same thing. The difficulty for us was we had a public stock that nobody traded. It traded by appointment because the capitalization of the company was so small that no one was interested in it, nobody followed it. So given the opportunity to sell it, we sold it to TD Bank at that time. I was 49 years old and wasn't ready to retire. And so by that time, there was a traditional LPGP structure available. And so we took advantage of that. Ontario Teachers Pension Fund was our first investor. And based on that, we raised $183 million, basically to do the same things we had been doing in Harriston, but with a view that uh, these funds have a life, 10 years, and they you can only draw the capital for five. And as a result, you have to realize on those investments, which is different than what we had at Harrison. But having said that, the principles of what we did were the same. Okay, so, so different structure without the scrutiny of public markets gave you more flexibility. 
so did you think think about the firm foundation as longer term in that sense? So you weren't as worried about what the stock ticker said? You you had longer term views and did that help you? You know, this sounds a little corny, but what we wanted to prove to the world was that you could partner with people, be good people, treat people with respect and still get returns that were adequate for your investors. It's, you know, it's a bit like today people doing ESG funds or other funds that that have a specific differentiator. Ours was that you could partner with founders and build a business off the back of that. The principles around that drive your behavior. It means that you don't try and get the last dollar because you're going to live with that person forever who you're giving the money to and that you you treat them with respect and that you know the value they add and the value you add. And you wouldn't do that if you were only going to do one fund. You would only do that if you thought that that was a way of building a differentiator so that when the marketplace recognized your name and your brand, they would know that that's what you represented and that's what you spoke for. And that was our plan. And now it's our fifth fund and it appears to have worked. I, I won't say that we understood all of the things you had to do when we first started or the kinds of people that you had to hire or, or the way you compensated them or the way you shared your equity with them. Those things were all have developed over the last uh, 20 years. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It, it is a bit cliche, but it's, it's de rigueur now. Like the partnership model, the empathy model of investing is very commonplace now, but 20 years ago, it certainly wasn't, especially coming out of the 80s when it was the, I'll call it the Milken era of, you know, takeovers and green mail and, and very aggressive tactics so at the time, it was a pretty disruptive model to say, look, let's partner with you and recognize our strengths. So that, that's quite different. Did you apply the same thing to building out the team initially? And maybe you can walk through some of the early stage formation stuff. Yes, for sure. I mean, don't forget when I started the RJR Nabisco KKR model was there. And what you did was you did an acquisition of 100% of the company and then you your your statement that you made to the street was you know we know how to manage it better than management that is not doing a good job and right. ours was exactly the opposite which is management has done a great job they just haven't had the capital to be able to allow them to expand in what they're doing nor can they solve their own family problems and therefore, we're going to provide capital to solve that problem, but we're going to show respect to the management team that has built the company to where it is. If you ask me who my heroes were, my heroes were those people, the people who lived in Listowel, Ontario, or Thunder Bay, or Chicoutimi, and not the people who lived on Bay Street. And as a result, even though many of the people we hired had had very short experience in the investment banking world. When the KKRs of the world had started, 100% of the people there had started in the investment banking world. Ours, that wasn't the case. And so we were looking for people who had great emotional intelligence in addition to their financial acumen. 
And so the only people who didn't stay with us over the years, and many of them have been more successful even than than we've been, uh, are people who weren't comfortable uh, dealing with the father in Kingston, Ontario, or in you know Red Deer, Alberta, who who had built a business that that had sold product uh, throughout North America and who needed a solution for his family transition. And, and that was our marketplace. And if someone had that emotional intelligence, they, were, they, they stayed with us forever. And if they didn't, but they were even more financially, had even higher financial acumen, then they went to a different place. Well, that's interesting. So were you hiring operators then at the time or younger people and training them with the hopes that they would develop the same kind of ethos and culture. You know, we have had a lot more success in building the talent within than we have in 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 hiring it outside. We've tried both. You know, Eric when he joined me had some operating experience. He had actually run a business, and he was my first uh, hire, and subsequently became my true partner in what I was doing. The rest of the young guys had 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 less operating experience, although Matt Chapman had had been the CFO of a of a technology company, and and others in our place had had some of that experience. But we, between Eric and I, we tried to develop the TorQuest ethos, which was slightly different than bidding at an auction uh, run by Houlihan Loki in the U.S winning it by being the best financial engineer and then taking the most costs that we could out of an asset. Ours was a little different model and has seemed to have worked so far. That's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the people in grooming. So I think this is relevant to what, what we're talking about here in the sense that, you know, at some point you'll retire, uh, hopefully not too soon, but then you're, you're going to leave the reins to the next generation. So how do you how do you identify and groom the next generation? What's your hiring process? What secrets would you offer? So that's a that's a really good question and one that we grapple with every single day. You know, it's it's first of all uh, uh, you develop it over a very long period of time because you share decision making with, and you have to know what decisions to retain at the top and which to delegate. You have to match. Uh, authority and responsibility. And if you don't do that, you can't expect people to take responsibility. You know, this morning we had a management meeting and it was a very uh, significant uh, argument because one of the young guys wanted to sell a certain business we have. I thought there was lots of potential in it. I will ultimately do what he wants to do. (laughs) He has the responsibility. He therefore has the authority. And because of that, uh, over time, uh, more and more of the decision-making ends up being in the next generation of people. And this becomes a metamorphosis. Uh, it's, it's in the DNA. It builds from within. And, uh, and it becomes obvious that more and more of the decisions are being made by people other than me and less and less by me over time. That's interesting. I, I suspect maybe over 20 years that it's easier to do over time. But, you know, you're a type A player and and I, I'm going through this myself. I'm 10 years in and thinking about, you know, the next generation. It's hard to give it up. And do you just 
you just accept that that's the way, even though you see mistakes being made and you kind of accept those along the way, even though you're really frustrated or how do you deal with that? Well, I doubt if there's very many guys in my shop who would, or our shop who wouldn't say that I don't say I told you so, because obviously <laughs> you can't help but do that. And every one of us do that, but this isn't about me. This is about our investors and our investors are entitled to the best management they can. And over time, you begin to realize that the world changes around you and the people who are closest to the change are the younger people, not you. And so what you have to do is, is be aware that although you may have more experience than anyone else, you're further and further away from the real problem or even from trends in the industry. So you have to listen to the people who do it, but it's more than listen and make the decisions yourself. It's actually allowing them to make the decisions. And then as I say, they might do some of them better. And when they do them better than you, you have to, you have to acknowledge that. When they do them worse than you, they have to listen to you say, I would have done it differently, but they laugh it off because they know that <laughs> This is just what comes from being around it for a very long time. You know, we all think about our mortality. We all think about the fact that we're not going to be there forever. And what you're trying to build is a firm that has longevity beyond you. And have we done a perfect job? Probably some people would say we haven't. Eric and I personally think that we have done a good job of that and that decisions are getting made at a level where they should get made, reserving to ourselves certain things that as long as we're there and our name is on the firm and, and our brand is there, we want to control. That's great. It sounds to me like there's a healthy dose of humility built into that. And that, that comes from experience and wisdom as well. Look, we, we make lots of mistakes, all of us. And, you know, the difficulty is that when you start with nothing and you build it from your from nothing, then you know you're taking big risks, but you have no choice but to take them. When you come to work with somebody and your negotiations are generally around the size of your salary and the size of your bonus, the hardest thing is to get those people to understand that they're investors, they're not employees, and that they have to act that way and that they have to fight for the big prize. And that's a transition. And to some extent, it comes from financial security. You know, it's Maslow's theory. If you're mm -hmm. at an early stage and your kids are in school and you can't afford a house, it's really hard for you to take big risk. If you have a level of financial security, then it's easier for you to take some risk. And so that's something I'd love to, to poke at a little bit. So when did you know, is it fund one, fund two, fund three, that okay, I, we've got this and I'm, I'm super comfortable and I can take more risk. And then the corollary to that is that when you get really comfortable, you don't want to lose things. And so do you become more risk adverse? Was there a kind of a moment or a fund? So I've never been comfortable that I'm not going to lose it all tomorrow. And that's the nature of, of the beast, <laughs> right? And, uh, and uh, you know, and maybe you call it humility, I call it fear, and I'll never lose it. I know I'll never lose it. I'm still the guy who, who wakes up every night worrying about the one small deal we have in our shop that is uh, in trouble. 
<laughs> you know, and it's part of the reason that we're in the place in the marketplace we are, because being in your business, Cole, where where you know that you only have, I don't know the number, I'll give you credit, 20% that are going to be big winners and sure. 30% that you think you're going to get your money back or a little bit and 50% that you had a good idea, but it all the pieces didn't come together and those numbers may be wrong, but just Not as far off. <laughs> you know, in our business, you don't like to have any that you don't get your money back and you don't like to have any that aren't at least an okay return, which means that you temper your upside on the great ones. And that's the way it is. And um, so that reflects our risk profile, which means that we are where we are in the marketplace and we don't do what you do. You know, it's when I tell young people who come to interviews, should they come and take a salary with us or should they go work for someone else or should they give it a shot? You know, and you and I've had this discussion, you know, when you're young and you, your downside is that, you know, (laughs) you're going to lose the savings that you have, but you can start again. Uh, that's a perfect time to take the risk. The difficulty is you don't have the experience at that point, and it's the hardest time to take the risk for that reason. No, I, I get it. Your comment around sort of paranoia resonates with me because I, I have the same problem. I wake up you know, early and I, I go to bed late, stressing about the little details. And I'm not quite sure if it's playing not to lose or playing to win. The difference being sort of a, a measure of risk tolerance and so it actually makes me feel a little better that, you know, even though you're wildly successful, you're still worried about the little details. Our brand is that we manage other people's money and we do it, we take it more seriously than we do our own. So I wouldn't spend five minutes a week on my personal wealth. <laughs> and I would spend, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day, seven days a week on my investors' wealth. <laughs> And yeah. that's what you get when you when you take money from other people. And, you know, I think a lot of people should consider whether they are suited to taking money from other people because it comes with a lot of responsibility, more responsibility than managing your own. Well, I think that's I think that's 100 percent true. The pressure is, is there all the time. So, Brent, switching gears just a little bit on process. So as your firm grew, obviously, the amount of capital you're raising now and and investing is 10 times bigger than than in the early days. Have you had to, um, well, obviously, you've grown in terms of operations and process internally. Has that helped or hindered or, you know, how much process do you put in relative to the early days now to try and keep things stable and has that been effective? Is there any tips there that people can learn? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. And it's the thing I, I hate the most. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you're a bit of an entrepreneur and you're used to making decisions, having to sit through investment committee, management committee, strategic planning uh, sessions, uh, human resource policies, uh, ESG policies, uh, financial reviews, budgets, um, all of those things are are an anathema, but a necessity. And so, um, you know, we should all hire people who are a good balance to us, not someone who's identical to us. Eric is a good balance to me, and some of the younger people are a good balance to me. Uh, We hire a very strong CFO who 
has really turned into a COO, and he manages many of those functions that I just mentioned. I'm very respectful of them. You know, I spend probably more time than anyone else on our quarterly disclosure, not than our CFO or his staff. But other than that, our quarterly disclosure, uh, I respect the fact that somebody else has to run our management committee and has to run our investment committee. Do I like it? I I don't like those meetings, but I know know they're a necessity. That's that's really helpful. Looking back, Brent, what lessons sort of stick with you the most? Maybe if there's a vignette or a story around an error that you made that you would have done something differently in retrospect or kind of key learnings over the last 20 years that you would impart in the next generation. I've made a thousand mistakes, that's for sure. And my paranoia has, has held us back from being bigger than we even could be. Any time you do something that you know you're not good at is the biggest mistake. So we think all the time about creating new funds. And my comment to them is, let's morph our risk profile to enable us to gain the expertise and let's manage people internally to help build the expertise with them. And then we can uh, move into a, a new fund or a new area. And, and I think that's what we will do. I think we will create new funds over time that, that have slightly different mandates than the fund that we have. But it will be because we've, we've tried it, we've learned it, we've experienced it. And the world has changed substantially since we started. And if the, there's a thing I'm proudest of is that we've been able to adapt to that change. Mm-hmm. But the biggest mistake is perhaps we didn't adapt fast enough so that you see the returns that have been earned in technology companies, in, in fintech, uh, which we have tons of experience in and, and haven't taken advantage of to the extent that others have. And, and so, you know, we've, we've left some growth opportunities when we have the relationships and we have the opportunities all the time and we haven't developed the expertise internally to allow us to take advantage of those appropriately. But at least we're cognizant of it and we're working towards that objective. I think that's a great answer, Brent. I mean, in the in the world of disruption, in a sense, the, the financial players and, and partners are the disruptors. So it is our business to find efficiencies and and make businesses better. Uh, but in so doing, there's others who are fresher and newer thoughts and business models that can come along and disrupt us. And so we have to be aware and cognizant of that. For sure, that's right. And, you know, look at I, I've taken abuse my whole life uh, uh, over not doing the next hot thing. So when I first started, it was mining. And then after that, it was oil and gas. And after that, you know, there's been a, there was technology and then there was Bitcoin and there was cannabis and the extension of cannabis. And we've, we've refused to participate in almost all of those sectors because they are they attract tons of capital in a very short period of time without all the things we've talked about which are building the the base of support beneath these companies but we've left a lot of money on the table as that's happened we've also 
not lost a lot of money in those spaces either. Right. And that may be the key ingredient for for longevity, honestly. It's the consistent approach with integrity and respect and partnership with entrepreneurs. So actually, maybe on that note, Bren, we, we can wrap it up here. Amazing interview. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Corin. Congratulations to you on everything you've done. You're awesome, my friend. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 